Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm joined by my colleague, Alex Mori. Alex, hello. Hi, Nico. So a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that we might be bringing new producers onto the show to help me sort of manage this unwieldy world of podcast production. Reporting for duty. Yeah, reporting for duty here in Philadelphia. We're in our studio. It's kind of fitting that we're starting with you, Alex, as our producer here on So To Speak, because we recently had you dive down a rabbit hole. That's right. And I'm about to climb out and tell you what I found. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about internet censorship. That's right. I encountered internet censorship, not for myself, but um, for my job. It made... Internet censorship made it hard to do my job. Impossible, nay, impossible to do my job. As your boss, I gave you this job, this impossible task, (laughs) to go find Richard Spencer. White nationalist leader Richard Spencer. Spencer speaking to a packed room tonight in the student center. At one point saying, quote, at the end of the day, this country belongs to white men. (sighs) Yes. Okay, so Richard Spencer, white nationalist, one of the most hated men in America, openly white supremacist, and in Charlottesville, back in August, one of these neo-Nazi white supremacist groups held a rally where one of them murdered a counter-protester, someone who was protesting against racism. 32-year-old Heather Heyer was killed when this Dodge Challenger rammed into a crowd of counter-protesters Saturday afternoon. A state of emergency declared in Virginia Saturday as clashes break out between white nationalists and counter-protesters in Charlottesville. Richard Spencer had been scheduled to speak at Charlottesville before they declared that state of emergency. So after this happened, um, I mean, someone died there. So there was this massive public backlash against this kind of speech. And how we got involved, you and I, Nico, how we got on this path initially was that that backlash had spread over to college campuses. Right. So at FIRE, we watch out for First Amendment rights on campuses, of course. And after Charlottesville, Richard Spencer was... He was trying to speak on campuses. We didn't know exactly the details, but we did know that the universities didn't want him to speak there. And they were citing these vague concerns over violence. They, they thought something like what happened at Charlottesville would happen on their campus if Richard Spencer were to be allowed to speak. So they weren't letting him. This was happening at Michigan State, Texas A&M. But we didn't know the details. We needed to know more. Yeah. So at FIRE, we only get involved with these free speech issues when there's some kind of First Amendment or um, legitimate free speech tie-in for students students and faculty. And at this point, it wasn't clear whether Richard Spencer was invited by someone on campus and that administrators were engaging in viewpoint discrimination uh, or if Spencer was just trying to rent out space on his own. So the bottom line is that I just needed to get in touch with Richard Spencer or someone else at his organization and ask who invited him. Exactly. Figure out the details. That's right. So I did what everybody does is I just Googled him like, you know, Richard Spencer National Policy Institute. That's the white supremacist institute that he runs. Um, and what I found was it w- I mean, it was downright disturbing for a free speech um, advocate his like website? myself. His website 
I didn't get to see it because it was gone. It didn't exist? It didn't exist. It had been wiped off of the internet. Wait, 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 wait. So how does a website get wiped off the internet? That's a great question. The answer is private companies. Private companies control a lot of these platforms, and they can just decide. Literally, they can just decide because here in America, private companies have the same associational and free speech rights that people do. They can decide whose speech to host or not to host. In other words, they can choose who to associate with. They can set their own community standards, for example, terms of service, editorial practices. Right. Totally free to do that. So in this case, the hosting company, um, a company called Squarespace, had been hosting Spencer's website and they said they would no longer do that. After Charlottesville, this happened with several of the big neo-Nazi supremacist-linked sites. GoDaddy and Google said they wouldn't host the website The Daily Stormer, for example. Yeah, neo-Nazi, white supremacist news site. Yep, and then there was Cloudflare, which protects sites like The Daily Stormer from hacker attacks, which you tend to get if you're white supremacist, by the way. Um, It protects from a very specific kind of hacker attack called a denial-of-service attack. So Cloudflare, GoDaddy, Google, Squarespace, all of these companies were under a ton of public pressure after Charlottesville not to service white supremacist speech because people were saying that it led to things like the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. Functionally, people were saying, take this kind of speech down, and companies were complying. I mean, you and I, we had never encountered an experience where we couldn't find someone or something on the internet that had once been on the internet and still wanted to be on the internet, but couldn't be. And it got me and many other people asking a lot of questions about what it means to have free speech in an age where the public square isn't, well, you know, the public square, which is overseen, of course, by a government bound by the First Amendment that can engage in viewpoint discrimination. But rather today, our public squares are, you know, now governed by private companies that, if they want to, can engage in viewpoint discrimination. That's right. I mean, it felt like I was like, gosh, this is like what it must be like to be like in China or something where people are, they know they're being censored. They're Shut down the rabbit hole. That's right. And I was like, this can't happen here in America, but it can. And it is happening right now. It is happening way beyond Richard Spencer and his ilk. It's happening on a much more troubling scale than I think a lot of people realize. So at your behest, Nico, when I couldn't find Richard Spencer... I went looking for answers. Thank you for calling the National Constitution Center, only museum of the U.S. Constitution and home to America's Town Hall, a series of lively constitutional conversations and debates. Hi, it's Jeff. So for starters, I called Jeff Rosen. Past podcast guest Past podcast guest, president of the National Constitution Center, and who, as we've sort of recently realized, was basically like the Nostradamus great predictor of all these internet, social media, speech issues, uh, because back in 2013, he wrote a piece for the New Republic uh, that predicted all this. It was called The Delete Squad. I wrote The Delete Squad because this is an age when platforms like Google and Facebook have more power over who can speak and who can be heard than any king or president or Supreme Court justice. And yet, as private companies, they're not bound by the First Amendment. And Jeff had predicted the rise of this kind of private power over free speech. 
In particular, he flagged what we're seeing come to fruition now, what he called at the time the rising, quote, ethical and financial costs of misjudgments. In other words, what happens when these companies get it wrong? So when these companies are managing billions of posts and their employee or a bot they're using, you know, when they censor something that they shouldn't censor or when one of these companies has to grapple with, for example, taking down speech the public at the moment doesn't like. Like what to do with white supremacist speech after Charlottesville. Like what to do with white supremacist speech after Charlottesville. So Jeff says the pressure to ban hateful, you know, quote unquote, offensive speech online that would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment offline has only increased since 2013. There is growing pressure both in the U.S. and around the world to ban hate speech. On campuses, we're seeing an explosive debate about the proper boundaries between free speech and emotional injury and values like equality and dignity. And we can definitely attest to that here at FIRE. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, debates over free speech and hate speech have dominated the headlines since, it seems, like 2015. And my job, more or less, has been to run triage ever since. And Jeff says this pressure is manifesting on a global scale. The European Court of Justice's ruling about the right to be forgotten on the Internet, which allows citizens in Europe to remove any speech that they find causes emotional injury or injuries, injures dignity, is a really striking development. And in the face of fears about terrorism, we're seeing yet more threats to ban speech that may be hateful without rising to the level of Uh, intentional incitement or true threats that are required to ban speech under the First Amendment. And uh, all of the pressures are in favor of more suppression, and the free speech side is more embattled than ever. So these questions about who is making the rules for free speech online and to what effect, Jeff Rosen is calling that debate about internet censorship the free speech issue of the next decade. And he's by no means the only one. Hello, Danny O'Brien. Hi, Danny. This, this is, is Danny O'Brien, the international director over at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. They defend civil rights like free speech on digital platforms. So after Charlottesville and the subsequent website takedowns, he and his colleagues wrote this great piece that got a ton of attention about the role that is played by these big companies. They call them intermediaries. They make you know, your presence on the internet possible. They help you buy URLs, avoid cyber attacks, host your site, things like that. Right, these intermediaries. And because they're hosting so much content from so many people, every decision they make has a huge ripple effect on speech across the globe. But it's truly not as simple as getting better at blocking, for example, or even just allowing a free speech free-for-all. As EFF put it, this issue is deeply fraught with emotional, logistical, and legal twists and turns. But first of all, I had to ask Danny, how did we even get here? How is it even possible that a small number of private companies has more control than the world's most powerful governments? Well, there's a couple of things going on, and they all revolve around the centralization of the Internet. The centralization of the Internet. That sounds like a fancy term. I know. Look at look at. I learned some stuff when you sent me on this uh, trip. The internet's great advantage was that there was no real concentration of power. If you wanted to set up a website, you were you were up and online, and you could run it from your house. So there were no, in theory, gatekeepers. Um, That's changed quite a bit. 
particularly with the rise of sort of central social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. So in a nutshell, the centralization of the internet. The centralization of the internet. The centralization of the internet just means increasingly there are only a handful of companies that are hosting the most substantial amounts of speech online. That these relatively few companies, Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, GoDaddy and Cloudflare and Squarespace, they have private control over what is arguably the modern day public forum for free speech, where we would all go to speak and listen online. So if you want to post something online or be sure everyone will see what you posted or post or access a certain website, the reality is that one of an increasingly small number of private entities controls that. Danny at EFF says that's the rub. The Internet is by default an uncensored medium, which means that if you want to start filtering and blocking and controlling what people say on it, you actually have to build a system for doing that. And so that's what keeps Danny up at night, now that we do so much of our speaking and listening online. The thing that's always worried us is what does an internet with provisions for controlling speech sort of riven through it actually look like? And there are a couple of answers to that. Um, one of them is that we're all on Facebook and we're all on Twitter and we leave it to the Facebooks and Twitters of the world to conduct that kind of um, filtering and blocking. But the problem with that is something American jurisprudence hasn't even come to a consensus about yet. Which is, well, what, what are you going to censor under those circumstances? Or, in other words, what are the community values you're trying to represent when the community is the entire world? Uh, that's a really tough question to answer because it suddenly means that, the, that Twitter has to decide who's right in a battle between Pakistan advocates and Hindu nationalists, right? It, it has like these questions of um, political speech everywhere around the world. Um, so I, I don't think that's something that, that really scales to the size of these, these companies. So again, when we talk about what happened to neo-Nazi websites after Charlottesville, for example, Danny says that even decisions to censor what most people would call really fringe speech are really fraught with those emotional, logistical, legal consequences for all of us. Yeah, after Charlottesville, Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare, I think wrote in an op-ed that he just woke up one morning in a bad mood and decided someone wasn't going to exist on the internet anymore. Yeah, and the way he finished that sentence was, and no one should have that power, a.k.a. not even me, a.k.a. that's pretty freaking scary that I can do that. I think back to, you know, James Madison, who, of course, is one of the framers of the Constitution, and how he talked about how if every man was an angel, we wouldn't need a Constitution. We wouldn't need a Bill of Rights. We wouldn't need a government. What he's saying there is essentially, we shouldn't trust humans with making decisions. We should trust processes and the rule of law with making decisions. And it sounded like here, Matthew Prince exercises so much power that there was no process. There was no rule. He just decided, I'm in a bad mood today. Someone's off the internet. And, you know, Nico, I think to their credit, these companies, many of them, they get that. Danny at EFF was telling me they realize they have to appear trustworthy to their users. And so, in turn, they kind of have to figure out how to manage that power. 
And Danny is having these conversations with these companies. Again, to their credit, they're asking him, come, tell us, how do we do this filtering, blocking, deleting thing the right way? He tells them, but he says it's not the answer they want to hear. A good policing guide for a billion-plus people is very low down on our, our model of how these things should work out. Right? I think that, the, that it's never going to be any good. <laughs> Of course, they disagree. And, you know, it's not stopping them from trying, trying to get it right, trying to see if they can get it right. And I think when we talk about companies who are at the forefront of working really hard on this issue, I think the big one that comes to mind is Facebook. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) there's been no shortage of criticism of them when they get it wrong. I mean, when Jeff Rosen wrote The Delete Squad, he talked about how Facebook had a 28-year-old recent college graduate whose name, I believe, was Dave Wilner. And Dave used his campus speech codes to more or less determine what 2 billion people on the internet can say. And as we know here at FIRE and listeners to this podcast know, speech codes, especially vague, overbroad ones, are ripe for abuse. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, he just he had recently graduated college, so he's like, "What can I use to to help me craft these policies that I'm newly in charge of of creating?" And he didn't even really have any very specialized background in this. He wasn't some you know big policy expert. He started in like a very low level position and just kind of worked his way up. So it was uh, very yeah. Alarming it, it says to in the it said in the piece that he started at Facebook working the night shifts in the help center. Exactly. And so I asked Facebook, I asked them, what are they doing today? Where are we at in the evolution of this platform? And it was really interesting what they said. You know, our overarching goal at Facebook is to create a space where both expression and personal safety are are protected and respected. So that's Mary Debris. She is the uh, the new Dave Wilner, basically. She's the head of Facebook's content policy team, and she is a policy expert, uh, was previously at the State Department, um, has worked abroad, and now she heads up this big team of other policy experts. And her job is to grapple with this shifting landscape. Our goal is to create a safe space for people, you know, across regions, countries, and cultures to share and communicate with each other. Our policies, what what we refer to as the community standards, are one set of global policies. And that's because Facebook is a borderless product. And so she said there are a couple of big issues when they are deciding the limits for billions of people. Justine Isola, I also talked to her. She is on their content policy team, too. Uh, Masters in international policy from Stanford, formerly in journalism at The Atlantic. She, Justine, says long gone are the days where, you know, we've got one lone guy coming up with this stuff on his own. We have former criminal prosecutors uh, who investigated child exploitation and terrorism. We have counter-extremism experts. We have someone whose focus was on counter-speech in particular. Someone on our team works at a rape crisis center. We have a former teacher uh, and many more. And we really try to make sure we're not doing any of our policy development in a vacuum. So Facebook is saying that the conversations that we're all having around the water cooler or at our dinner tables, they're trying to replicate that environment when they come up with these policies. Here's Mary. This is something we take really seriously. 
um, we discuss, we debate, and we grapple with these issues, you know, every single day. Fundamentally, we want to allow as much speech up on the platform as possible. Um, the line is really around the safety of, of our users. Our goal is to create that community, that very global community where people will share and share very openly. And what we know is um, people only do that when they're comfortable. And so Facebook has done a lot of research here, and they're saying that there will be more speech on their platform if people feel like it's a safe, respectful environment. I think we all sort of get that. But then the next issue is exactly how, what tools are they using to curate this environment? For the past few years, for them and a lot of other companies like YouTube, for example, it's this mix of human and automated bot-type systems to flag violations. But Danny over at EFF, he says it's not enough and it's never going to be enough. I think they've talked themselves into a corner here, right? That they've promised to create a friendly, engaging environment with family values for all. Um, and then people looked to them and expected them to enforce that. And you're talking about, at least on Facebook's platform, like literally billions of people that's not something that you're going to fix with with throwing more technology or throwing more people at it. So you really need what he says is one to one policing on these massively scaled platforms. You just can't have an effective central control that can police everybody. Someone or something, some bot is eventually going to get it wrong. But the really extreme stuff, getting your whole account deleted, that's happening to Richard Spencer, a guy pretty much everyone doesn't want to hear from. Do we need to get worked up over it? Yes, because it's not just Richard Spencer. It's not? No. What do you mean it's not? So you know who Chelsea Manning is. Chelsea Manning's story strikes at a fundamental dilemma of our cyber age. The Chelsea Manning, yes. She was engaged in espionage. Yep, convicted of espionage against the United States in a court-martial um, for leaking documents to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks run by Julian Assange. That's right. Uh, we are in the land of Edward Snowden, uh, these big spying cases uh, with these international implications, biggest cases in the last couple of years. And the reason you, well, we, know much of what we know about Chelsea Manning is because of someone named Alexa O'Brien. So I'm a writer and researcher. I focus um, primarily on national security and law enforcement. This is Alexa O'Brien. So she is a journalist. Um, and if you don't know her byline, you probably know her work. It's been in The New York Times, on the BBC, NPR, PBS. Um, Alexa O'Brien, no relation to Danny O'Brien over at uh, EFF, by the way. Between 2011 and 2013, I was one of a couple reporters slash researchers who covered the court-martial of Chelsea Manning. And, you know, it, it was important coverage because there was no contemporaneous access to a, the public record of court like you would have in a federal criminal case. Yeah, and several of the charges that Chelsea Manning uh, was facing were, like, exceptionally serious for this kind of crime. The aiding the enemy charge by aiding the enemy through a publication like WikiLeaks, that hadn't been charged since the U.S. Civil War and somebody was charged with aiding the enemy via newspaper, you know, back in the era of, like, the printing press. And so then this other charge that Manning was facing was something called wanton publication, and that no one had ever been charged with ever. You know, being able to understand this case 
was paramount and certainly in the public interest. And to boot, you know, because of the sort of complicated and detailed um, evidence under black redactions because it was classified, sort of analysis like the kind that I provided was really critical for people to understand what was going on. So she has compiled all these um, transcriptions, you know, these black box redacted government documents. She's hand filling in what is there from the trial. And then there's, uh, long story short, there were some Al-Qaeda videos that were critical, propaganda videos that were critical to figuring out basically whether or not Osama bin Laden uh, had gotten the information that Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, had leaked. So Alexa O'Brien had put clips of these propaganda videos out on the Internet. But this is, you know, in the... Uh, description boxes that she had put out. She was saying, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, for archival purposes. I'm a journalist. Links to her, you know, journalism website, that kind of stuff. But that was not enough. This summer, I, with the, the Google's new counterterrorism protocol, I started receiving like notifications that my videos were being regarded as um, against the terms of service. So background: just this summer, Google um, adopted. Uh, amidst pressure from, you know, our government, several governments in Europe, um, this new protocol to deal with flagging terrorist propaganda, terrorist content on the Internet. Um, And wouldn't you know, one of the things that it flagged was Alexa O'Brien's reporting. But she's not a terrorist. No, she's not. She's a journalist, and she's the kind of person She's just reporting on terrorism. That's right, but Google didn't know that. So she had been getting warning notifications from YouTube, which is where she'd posted these videos, for months. YouTube is owned by Google. So for months, YouTube had been sending Alexa O'Brien these warnings like, you know, your videos are violating our terms of service. You need to take them down. And for months, Alexa O'Brien had been writing back. She'd been appealing, you know, through these online appeals processes that they provide. And I appealed every notification and uh, all my appeals were rejected. I explained detailed like I'm a journalist for a court martial. And I had even provided context, you know, in the description box. I didn't just throw it out on the Internet. Like I said, this is part of a, you know, uh, an exhibit at a court-martial. This is not for propaganda purposes. This is for archival purposes. And uh, all my appeals were rejected. And then just a few weeks ago, in early September, right after Google ramped up its anti-terrorism protocol, she gets this sort of heart-stopping notice that she's now, not only is she now banned for life from YouTube, but her entire Google account, because remember, these companies are connected, her entire Google account, Gmail, Google Drive storage, the whole thing. I was going to lose my entire, that my Google account was slated for deletion. Slated for deletion. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So this is some bot then, right? Like accidentally flagging your videos. But, you know, you'd think a bot or even a human reviewer with everything that you put on there should have caught that you're a journalist. But that's what happened. The crazy thing about it, and it was sort of hilarious and frightening at the same time, is a human reviewer. Okay, the videos were removed, right? Like... But the human reviewer actually looked at my channel and decided that I, I don't remember the exact phrase, but that I was essentially a purveyor of terroristic propaganda. They can't take down your whole channel like they did with me unless it's a human reviewed. So basically, Alexa O'Brien does everything that you would want to do if you were going to put this kind of content, this very, um, you know, politically important uh 
socially relevant journalism on the internet. She checks all the boxes, whatever. It still gets censored. And it, they didn't just take it down. She was going to get Richard Spencer. She was going to get erased. But, but she's not a white supremacist, a white nationalist. She's someone reporting on an issue of public concern. Exactly. And that is why this is so critical. And the kicker is that even, you know, Alexa O'Brien, who's an expert at, you know, filling in the blanks and filling in black box redacted stuff, she still doesn't even know what really, um, you know, at a base level went wrong with this, like, flagging and appeals process. She doesn't really know what exactly she needs to do to avoid it in the future. And then, of course, when it was happening to her and her appeals were getting denied, she was in this panic. Like, all her work from years and years was slated for um, deletion, and it was going to be a ban for life. I asked her, you know, what was going through your mind? Well, I'll tell you the first thing I thought is oh my God, I got to get to work right now and I'm late and I don't have time to deal with this and why is this happening right now? And you know, she'd already backed up a lot of her stuff because she has these highly sensitive documents, but she wasn't 100% sure, um, A, that she had gotten everything and B, that some of the stuff that she had on there would even be compatible off of the Google platform. Like, for example, she had these maps that she had made using Google, you know, web tools. And she wasn't sure if, you know, if they closed her Google account down, if they would just be totally, totally inaccessible forever. I immediately posted on Twitter. I probably should have written something up right away, but I was like on my way to work and busy and I have a hundred other things to do. Um, so I kind of tweeted out sort of in, in exasperation. Uncensored tweet to the rescue. And luckily for me, a couple of people who are well respected in the legal and or uh, journalistic fields who had valued my work retweeted it. People like um, uh, folks at the Brennan Center um, at New York University, um, their national security folks retweeted it. The Freedom of the Press organization retweeted it. Jeremy Scale retweeted it. So your story really only has a happy ending then because you were able to get the word out in this really public way. And that created a kind of like a, a legitimacy, which um, it's a privilege, obviously. I mean, this could happen to somebody who doesn't have that access and it'd be gone. Gone. Alex, you have me scared. This is You should be scared, Nico. Well, no, I'm scared because we work at fire on often controversial issues doesn't always involve terrorism but sometimes we're defending professors who do defend terrorism and we're talking about it in our materials on our website over email putting files on google drive could we be flagged for this absolutely i mean we that is a big issue it might be Richard Spencer today, but then it's Alexa O'Brien tomorrow, and then they're coming for us or whoever you are, the listener out there. So the good news is that Alexa O'Brien's story has a uh, mostly happy ending, um, but only because her tweet uh, made it to the right people. A spokesperson from YouTube and Google, a communications person, actually emailed me and then asked if they could talk to me. And I did have, I had like a 45 minute conversation with them. Um, so they specifically, and they apologized, right? That was the first thing they did. They said, we're really sorry that this has happened. And they explained to me exactly what happened. But the uh, appeals process that is so problematic, it is still very opaque. And uh, Alexa O'Brien is certainly not the only journalist that this has happened to. I talked to Courtney Radge, who's over at the Committee to Protect Journalists. I ran into her at uh, the museum recently. We're at a um, 
exceptionally well attended symposium on this very topic of, you know, the future of internet speech online. She says that this is happening to journalists on a grand scale. And, you know, listen to this example here. It is pretty egregious. I did um, work with the Raqqa's Being Slaughtered Silently, which is a group of citizen journalists who were reporting out of Raqqa. That's Raqqa, Syria. That country's been embroiled in a civil war for more than six years now. Literally at the risk of their own lives, several members were murdered in Raqqa. They then fled to Turkey. Some of them were hunted down and murdered there. Some of them fled to Germany. The point being, at great risk to bring information from one of the most closed environments and one of the most important you know, wars happening right now, conflicts happening in our time, and their Twitter account was closed for violation of terms of service, probably because they were posting, you know, images of violence and whatever, you know, bot or whatever person reviewed that incorrectly assumed it was terroristic or extremist. Um, And just like in Alexa O'Brien's case, where she had to sort of know the right people, DPJ had to pull strings for um, these journalists in Raqqa to get their Twitter account reinstated. So Courtney was saying that when you appeal through these online platforms, you know, you click here, my content has been wrongly taken down. She said that almost never works. I've spoken with hundreds of journalists and activists over the past decade. I've never met anybody who successfully got their account or content reopened or, or, you know, reconstituted who did it through an, through, through an automated mechanism. We've always had to go directly to the company or, you know, know somebody who knows somebody. So we need more effective remedy. So what's, so what's the solution for, for us? I mean, do we go back to the, the 20th century system where there is no cloud? Don't you and, take away my Facebook and my Instagram, and Nico Perino. Back up to this, like, um, drive, I guess we call it. Not Google Drive, but, like, physical drive. So in the meantime, you should probably back your stuff up, especially um, as... Alex O'Brien was telling me, especially if it's stuff that like is you know priceless that is nowhere else uh, publicly accessible. Backup, backup, probably backup. best practice. Hard drives, um, but there are a couple solutions that the experts were pushing to me, and there was surprising agreement like amongst all of them about exactly what the solutions are. So first of all, even even Facebook was like, yes, I agree with the person over at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They are agreeing on what the solutions are, but the tricky part is that. We all play a big role, so we have to get engaged. So what do I need to do? So first, you might want to consider a world in which the Internet is decentralized. The decentralization of the Internet. (laughs) There we go again. Uh, So the question, Nico, is could you see yourself uh, in this decentralized Internet world not going to Facebook, for example, but instead hosting your own little version of Facebook with your own community that you police on a one-to-one level. That is the vision that some people... These are what This is what people is, are recommending this to you? This is what... I wouldn't even know how to do that. Me either. Um, but then I, I would still need to go to, like, GoDaddy to register the domain name, but if for some reason GoDaddy, you know, what I believe or what I'm hosting on my site is no longer... You know, considered appropriate by GoDaddy, then I just get wiped back from the internet and we're square one. That's right. Or you could go to the dark web. It's the place that 
where you buy bazookas. That's right. And so the legend goes child porn and drugs. Um, but no, uh, in all seriousness, Danny at EFF told me we should all actually be on the dark web. You can't just get there by typing in a web address, but everything you do is anonymous and untraceable, which is why it's been a bit of a no-brainer for people who want to commit criminal activity. But apparently it's also a way to get us back on this truly censorship-free platform, and we really should all know how to use it, so the experts say. I'm assuming we can go to EFF's website and learn how to get in the dark web. That's a good place to start. Uh, but you have to download Tor, which is the special software that roots your IP address. Um, okay, you with me? IP address. It roots your IP address through various channels. Apparently, it's like this onion-like network of channels so that no one can tell who you are. And so that's why people go there to buy the bazookas. It seems a little shady. It does seem shady, but again, if more people are there, um, it will. Uh, we will come out of the shade yeah, again. This, this is how we, you know, decentralize the centralization of the internet. So One of the ways. That's right. So this is the like ideal utopia. We all live on the dark web. So yeah. So at least for the moment, we're not all gonna, you know, go to the dark web. We're gonna keep Facebook and Instagram and all those things that we love. So let's just accept, um, for argument's sake, that the internet is gonna stay centralized. How do we work with this reality that we have? Um, well, accountability and transparency is key. Here's Mary at Facebook. Transparency is important because we want people to understand the thoughtfulness that goes into policies and the space that we're trying to create. We're trying to be, you know, really explain how um, nuanced and some of these issues, how complex they can be. So Facebook, they tell me they're hearing us. And so they're now publishing a transparency report of requests they get from the government. They've got a hard questions blog where they go into more depth about what decisions they're making and how. As much as possible as we can be open and transparent um, about those kind of rules of the road of what we allow up and what we take down, it creates a space where people are better able to share better able to share. Um, and now bringing back Courtney over at CPJ, um, those people definitely include journalists. We have to demand that companies engage in transparent practices, that they are proactive in reporting on what the assumptions going into their algorithms are, what are the rules about speech that is allowed or not allowed, what content is being removed and why, and, and they have to provide remedy. And so the Electronic Frontier Foundation hosts a site, onlinecensorship.org, where you can actually submit reports if your content gets flagged or taken down or censored in some way. Danny O'Brien says that even though there are a lot of troubling issues here, they're crunching the numbers uh, that this data is giving them and trying to figure out these companies' motives. And that is actually giving him some level of confidence. Now, I, I'm, I, I'm not somebody who feels that these companies are doing anything actively malicious. I don't think they're controlled by one political group or another. In my criminology of these companies, the way that you see them behaving is very much driven by the headlines and the feel and the thinking of people as much as it does sort of the, the, the metrics. So these companies are giving us what we're asking for. So? So I think it's really important to keep the dialogue going, right? It's very important to sort of challenge the idea that the more that they filter and block and delete, 
the happier people will be. I mean, that is just huge. This is on us. I was struck at the end of uh, Matthew Prince's blog posts entitled Why We Terminated the Daily Stormer. He says when he was meeting with his staff to discuss the termination, someone on his team asked, is this the day the internet dies? Coming back to that point that the internet was this decentralized place for freedom and with the new and ever-rising centralization of it, it no longer seems like the internet we remember. It's no longer the internet that's so robust and exciting, the new frontier, so to speak. Now it's Facebook, it's Google, it's Cloudflare, and these are exciting platforms, of course, in and of themselves, but they're also very powerful. Absolutely, and that is what this comes down to, really. I mean, it is a... This is a human rights issue. So we really need to exercise our rights, even though these companies do have a lot of control. Um, So that brings us back around to our friend Jeff Rosen, who predicted all of what's happening today. And he agrees. What does he say we should do? Well, um, this is actually for such a complicated issue. This is easy. We start with one very important paragraph. I think that students should read and teachers should encourage them to read and all of us should think about Brandeis's reasoning in Whitney. It's the most inspiring statement of free speech ever. Ever. And it's just a few sentences. So this is Louis Brandeis in Whitney versus California. So we're back in the 1920s now. Uh, Jeff Rosen can recite this thing by heart like a party trick. Um, So Brandeis is here. Um, He's channeling Jefferson and 5th century Athens and Pericles' funeral oration from the Peloponnesian War. So this is like foundational ideas about how speech is so necessary uh, to maintain human rights and our basic freedoms that are uh, that are implicated on these very new platforms. So this is um, this is Enlightenment Redux. So I'm going to recite it, and I want listeners to listen to it carefully. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's arguing. Not just the beautiful rhetoric, but the substance of what he's saying. And then what do we do, Nico? What do we do, listeners? And then if you're persuaded by it, go live by it. Okay, here we go. Those who won our revolution believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, Discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine that the greatest threat to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. So just like we the people in our government, we can ask for recourse and redress I and a lot of other people that fight for these speech rights in our our day-to-day jobs, I am hopeful that people, you, me, us, we can take control of what we see on the internet in our role as consumers. We can hold these companies accountable. We just have to be engaged. We have to know what's going on. And then we have to ask for what we want. We have the power here. We just have to exercise it. Exercise it. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, produced by Alex Mori, 
and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter if you still have access to Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or follow us on Facebook if we're still on Facebook after this podcast at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. I also want to uh, thank Alex, our guests, our you know, stand-in interviewees, the people you interviewed for talking to us, including, to their credit, Facebook. Absolutely. Yeah, Facebook was really gracious, and I was impressed by what they said. Yeah, and if you have any feedback about what they said or what we said, you can email us at so to speak at thefire.org. And as always, you can call in a question at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this show, want to hear more shows like it, please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever you get your podcasts. Uh, it not only helps new listeners find the show, but it massages Alex and Aaron and my egos. Uh, and until next time, thanks again for listening.